right, in our second segment today, I think we'll kind of stress science, especially science that are follow-up stories on items we've talked about before. Here's a headline we cannot resist, uh, based on a story we talked about at some length a few months back. This comes from the Austin Daily Herald. Headline, Salton Sea fingered as culprit of big California stink. Dateline Santa Ana, California. After a day of odor surveillance and other scent-based sleuthing, Southern California air quality investigators confirmed Tuesday what they'd already expected, that a pungent, rotten egg aroma that stretched across the region came from the Salton Sea. We reported here on Radio Parallax a few months back about a little side trip down to the Salton Sea, which stunned this correspondent for the eco-catastrophe that it is and has been pretty much unreported on. Well, apparently spreading a stench across much of Southern California has gotten some people's attention. In fact, my clinic manager said that he had relatives reporting a bad smell in Simi Valley. Look at a map. Look how far Simi Valley is from the Salton Sea. This is especially poignant for the follow-up story we did a couple weeks ago about the development Riverside County is looking at putting in in the area around the Salton Sea. Yes, there appears to be no way of stopping crazed Southern California real estate developers. This story will help. To quote further from it, A recent fish die-off was a likely contributing factor, said Andrew Schlang, general manager of the Salton Sea Authority. An executive officer from the South Coast Air Quality Management District said, We now have solid evidence that points to the Salton Sea as the source of a very large and unusual odor event. Said the Austin Daily Herald. And I gotta admit, there's probably a little bit of nya to California coming from Texas on this one, but, you know, I'm okay with that. The LA Times was on the story, but <laughs> the writers weren't quite as colorful as those Texas boys. To go on, the air sample showed the levels of hydrogen sulfide, which has an unmistakable rotten egg odor, were highest around the lake and grew weaker at bigger distances. Modeling showed that a massive thunderstorm could have churned up bacteria and released the stench into the air, where it becomes trapped by low-hanging clouds. But, uh, boy, apparently these AQMD guys are right on top of it. Further quote from Andrew Schlang, The problem I'm having is the magnitude of the area that was covered by the odor itself. But I guess it can happen under the right conditions, and we had those conditions, apparently, the other night. Notice the piece, the lake's depth has dropped in recent years, exposing lake bed that generates dust. By 2018, the depth is expected to drop another 15 to 20 feet, exposing 140 square miles of lake bottom and its dust. And there is a plan to save the Salton Sea, which, in, which involves cutting it in half, letting half of it dry out using the dry lake bed to host extensive geothermal and solar fields that could mitigate the restoration costs and provide power for millions of homes. I mean, let's, let's build more homes down there. That's a great plan. I guess you could power homes that are already there. I don't know. We're going to continue to follow the story of the Salton Sea because it is, uh, it is just a catastrophe unfolding before us. I'm kind of glad for the reportedly 60-mile-an-hour winds that blew through that area and kind of alerted Southern California to the fact that Mm, there's a problem here. We'd also refer you to a follow-up piece for our talk last week with Ted Cheeseman about ice at the top of the world to a recent New Scientist, September 1st, 2012, article about the ultimate meltdown taking place at the top of the Earth. Buried in that piece was one stat that struck me between the eyes. Satellite data can't really distinguish between ice that's uh, thin and, and 
not likely to persevere versus thicker ice. Measurements of the ice thickness uh, between 1979 and 2000 show that the average volume of Arctic ice in September was 12,000 cubic kilometers, as opposed to this year, where it's less than 3,000 cubic kilometers. Noted the magazine, in plain words, we are three quarters of the way to a summertime ice-free Arctic Ocean with all the climactic, geopolitical, environmental, and economic consequences. And I don't know about you, dear listener, but that just scares the hell out of me. And as follow-up on our piece we did with author Sam Keen about his book, The Violinist's Thumb, there's the rather startling, I mean rather truly earth-shaking news that scientists have now figured out what so-called junk DNA does. In the past few decades, we learned to identify where, on our chromosomes, uh, the DNA codes for genes. In other words, the DNA sections that actually produce proteins. It's been thought that uh, what governs life is that DNA makes RNA and RNA makes proteins, which many people thought might be somewhat of an incomplete picture. Well, <laughs> now it seems obvious this was an astoundingly incomplete picture, which actually, in retrospect, really shouldn't surprise us since... We have a lot of extra, so-called extra DNA. Nobody knew what it did. Chances are, if it didn't do anything, animals would get rid of it, as would plants, as would fungi. You wouldn't need it. Well, scientists have taken a look at what this stuff does, and uh, they're figuring it out. In fact, two weeks ago, 30 research papers were published, six of them in the journal Nature, and they're full of revelations. The revolutionary notion coming out of this is that... uh, Three-quarters of the genome, our entire collection of DNA, gets transcribed at some point into RNA. The estimates are that 62% of our genome can end up in the form of a transcript, something that's been rewritten in, in RNA that looks like it's stable and does something. What does it do? Well, it apparently tells the other parts of the DNA when to turn off and on. It acts as switches. And from this revelation, we should be able to understand how it is that uh, certain cells in one part of the body turn on different genes than do other cells, which thus makes, say, a liver cell different from a nerve cell, different from a muscle cell. Once we sort this stuff out, which is going to take some time, it may offer the possibility for physicians and researchers to be able to cure diseases by turning off or on the switches in various cells that... uh, maybe malfunctioning, or maybe causing the cell to act in a way that's not good. We might have better ways to regenerate nerve cells, for example, after spinal injury. The, the, the potential of this is going to be pretty, uh, pretty limitless, I think. And this surely represents another of the many topics that we will continue to follow, because it's just, it's just damned exciting. We've been unabashedly critical on this program about the practice of feeding animals antibiotics to fatten them up. The majority of antibiotics produced in America go into animal feed, which is just a national disgrace, since they are being used to fatten up the animals by means which are very imperfectly understood, while having the guts of these beasts produce, like a factory, antibiotic-resistant bugs. Bad idea in many respects. Well, here's another way it might be a bad idea. There are two new studies that suggest that antibiotics may have a similar effect on people, as in fattening up cows, pigs, and chickens. This may work by changing the types of bacteria that live in our guts. 
New York University researchers analyzed the medical records of 11,000 young children and found that those who had received antibiotics before they were six months old were 22% more likely to be overweight by age three than those who hadn't. Researchers also replicated the results on farm animals with mice. Mice given antibiotics put on 15% more body fat than those who weren't. Noted The Week magazine, scientists are just beginning to understand how our gut bacteria affect our digestion, immune systems, and even mental health. Shifts in our gut flora have previously been linked to cancer, autism, and heart disease, and can lead to overabsorption of calories and obesity. That's according to study author Leonardo Tresende. He and his colleagues are now trying to determine whether these small quantities of antibiotics which we ingest when we eat drug-fed livestock are having any effect on our guts and weight. And the great debate over whether to circumcise or not may be taking a swing in the pro side. A report by the American Academy of Pediatrics has found after a review of 1,000 studies of male circumcision that the medical benefits outweigh the risks of the procedure. Circumcised babies are 90% less likely than uncircumcised ones to develop a urinary tract infection in their first year. Later on in life, they are at lower risk of contracting HIV, herpes, penile cancer, and human papillomavirus, which, when passed to female partners, can cause cervical cancer. Circumcision rates are declining. Just over 50% of parents currently opt for their male babies to have the procedure. Opponents of circumcision say that it's a form of mutilation and say it's fundamentally unethical to remove a baby boy's healthy foreskin and cause him pain without his consent. Does circumcision lead to decreased sensitivity of the penis in the male? I've heard it said that it surely does and heard it said that no one's sure about this yet. The debate goes on. And I'm pleased to note that something I've talked about on this program in brief and at greater length on on a website, a blog that I have for healthcare, sacramentomenshealth.com, about the testosterone frenzy currently going on in the United States. And I'm grateful to be majorly backed up by a, uh, a piece on the Associated Press here this week, which I think I'll quote from. Are you falling asleep after dinner? I do have a decrease in libido. Have you noticed a recent deterioration in your ability to play sports? It could be low T. Welcome to the latest marketing push by U.S. drug companies. In this case, it's a webpage for Abbott Laboratories Androgel, a billion-dollar selling testosterone gel used by millions of American men struggling with the symptoms of growing older that are associated with low testosterone, such as poor sex drive, weight gain, and fatigue. But the article quotes Dr. Sergei Romashkan, saying the problem is we don't have any evidence that prescribing testosterone to older men with relatively low testosterone levels does any good. Noted Dr. Natan Bar Chama, all of a sudden you've got these big players with a lot of money using consumer-directed marketing to change the landscape. They see the potential. They see the market growth annually, and it's impressive. But government researchers worry that medical treatments have gotten ahead of the science. Now, male testosterone is mainly produced in the testes. It affects muscle mass, sperm production, and various sexual characteristics. I would say mainly libido. The hormone can easily be checked with a blood test, but we doctors can't seem to agree on what constitutes a low reading in older men. Typical levels for younger men range between 300 and 1,000 nanograms per deciliter. But once levels begin dropping, there's little consensus 
on what makes a normal number. Some doctors believe levels below 300 lead to sexual dysfunction in older men, but the rule doesn't cover all cases. A 2010 study by researchers at the University of Manchester found that 25% of men with testosterone levels above that threshold had the same sexual problems used to diagnose low testosterone. Adding to the ambiguity is the fact that the levels men have changed by the hour. So a man who takes a blood test in the morning may get a completely different reading from when tested in the afternoon. I don't know who said it. William Osler, I think, the great, the great legendary physician. I don't, I'm not sure, but someone once said that, you know, f- I'm, I'm paraphrasing, fads are a bad idea in medicine. I think that's true, and I think, folks, this is one big fad. I don't doubt that there will be some people that will be helped by doing androgel or other testosterone supplements, but uh, for the vast majority of men, I think this is a big waste of time and money. But I would add, as always, consult your physician. All right, that same September 1st, uh, New Scientist had a fascinating piece titled Eat Your Way to Dementia, asking if the Western diet is poisoning our brains, which is uh, raising the possibility that Alzheimer's might be a form of diabetes. This is kind of a barn burner of an article, and we need to devote some time to it. We don't have enough time to do that today, I think, so let's give it its due on next week's program. In fact, let's go into outer space for the last couple items we have here on this segment. Scientists using the Kepler space probe looking for uh, planets orbiting in front of their their host stars. Looking out 4,900 light years from the Earth have found, uh, well, something a little unusual. A pair of planets that jointly orbit a binary star system. We talked in this program about how some weeks ago they did find a planet that was orbiting a binary star system, but now they've got two. This is not really a quantum leap, but uh, I think what we're going to find when the data comes in that there are lots of these out there and that, um, well, th- there were some who thought it just wasn't possible. If you had a binary star system, the various interactions from gravity would mean you'd never be able to get planets orbiting them. Others argued that, well, no, there's a center of gravity between those two stars and you could have planets orbiting out that common center of gravity. Well, that now has been proven to be the case. And I guess another example where... Science fiction is just a little bit ahead of science. The larger of the two planets orbiting uh, this system, dubbed Kepler-47c, is almost certainly a gas giant, but uh, New Scientist notes that if it has any rocky moons, they they could be ripe for life, like Endor in Star Wars or Avatar's Pandora. Well, yeah, maybe, but we'll still have to wait for the science to catch up to the science fiction on those uh, speculations. And a final item, piece by Aaron Brown in the Los Angeles Times about the Voyager 1 spacecraft, which <laughs> we've been talking for years about how it's set to leave the solar system, but they can't seem to decide when it's done so. Uh, we're, we're dying to bring Ed Stone, the uh, chief investigator for the Voyager missions, on this program, but we keep waiting for the moment when they're, when they're sure it's crossed the heliopause and gone out into interstellar space. We know it's going to do it, But doggone it, the data from the spacecraft is just not telling us that it's done so yet. It's curious to me, even though the mission was launched in 1977, Ed Stone is still considered the project uh, scientist on the mission. He's a member of Caltech Space Radiation Lab. The spacecraft is so far out there now that the cameras on board don't do any good. There's nothing to see. 
Although back in February of 1990, when it was 6 billion miles from Earth, Voyager turned its cameras to take a family portrait of our solar system. Part of that image was the famous pale blue dot photograph, which depicted our planet as a tiny blip in the heavens. Voyager 1 is now 11.3 billion miles from the sun, and it takes 17 light hours for a signal from the spacecraft to reach us back here at Earth. We're crossing our fingers and hope that sometime uh, later this year or in 2013, we'll get more definitive data from from, uh, deep space and be able to bring Ed Stone on and talk about all this marvelous science done by NASA. We'll also get around to trying doing our, our obituary of Neil Armstrong on next week's show. Uh, Neil Armstrong uh, uh, was very critical of President Obama's decision to cut back on NASA's funds, and so are we. At any rate, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. 